Welcome to Guitar Radio Show, the show dedicated to the guitar player, guitar maker, gear builder and purveyors of such items that you may not know about, but should. Mark Davin. All right, folks, welcome back to another episode of Guitar Radio Show. Our next guest is a perfect example of the American story. He comes from a hardworking family, began playing the instrument when he was 11, and honed his craft on gospel music in the church before entering into the jazz realm around 1996. His fifth album, released in 2008, was a breakthrough album on the Billboard Contemporary Jazz Charts, 
And the first time I heard him was around uh, 2017, and he has been capturing my imagination with his playing and style ever since. He has a new record called 80s 8.0, and we're going to explore that and much more. Please welcome to Guitar Radio Show, Mr. Tim Bowman. How are you, sir? How's it going, man? You all right? I'm all right, and I'm ready. We, we, uh, I'm we, ready to. We finally made this happen, you and me. <laughs> yes, yes. Had a few bumps in the road, but here we are. We are. Here we are. I got to tell you, I really love this record. Um, but I was wondering, why the 80s? Why did you pick these these particular tracks? What was that all about? Well, it's more. It's going to be more like a three or four song, three or four album endeavor we just start we just decided to start with the 80s oh wow okay cool yeah so we're gonna do the 90s the 2000s the 2000 teens <laughs> oh. you know so oh, we just I started in the 80s oh i love that i think that's great um yeah yeah the tracks that you chose for the record are really an excellent example of the de- of that decade as far as popular music and really well-written songs too was it was it difficult to choose those particular tracks? Yes, it was because, like you just said, that particular decade, it could have been another twenty five songs mm. in that decade that were hits, pop, R and B, from rock bands, you know, solo artists, whatever you want to, whatever genre. It was a ton of hits, so we just kind of settled on that. We thought it was just a, a mix of everything. So we settled on those 10 songs and we tried to, I'm trying to play them, the, the verses as close to the vocals. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Simplify it. So people who actually, you know, it's hard to reinvent the wheel. The song was already a hit. So <laughs> our thing was, let's not just try to reinvent something that was already great. Keep it as simple as possible so people can enjoy it. <laughs> well, yeah. And it really is really enjoyable. Um, uh, what what? Just give us an idea. What were some of the tracks that didn't make it? It's hard to it's hard for me to go back and think. <laughs> I don't know because I recorded this a year ago. Oh wow! And a lot has transpired since then. You know. Yeah, for sure. So we just had to really set up. Then you know we kept set back every you know like every look time we look up it was a COVID issue. We had to yeah. you know step back. So that took. A lot of times, so it's hard for me to even think of some of the songs that uh, yeah. didn't make it. Yeah, but it could have been another like another twenty twenty five songs. Wow, that's great. Um, you yeah. did you did one of my favorite Shaka tunes from the eighties, uh, "Through the Fire." It's such a killer yeah. version, and um, that melody and the chord changes are so beautiful. Um, oh, aren't they? They really are. I mean, it's just such a great song. It was it was meant to be a hit. You know, it was, it was yes, yes. you know, and it, and it really was, and I love that song, and I love Shaka. So, uh, hearing what you did with it was really, really beautiful. I love it. Thank you. And you know, a song that I um, we did selling, and when I went back and listened to it, I mean, I love that song back in the eighties, mm-hmm. and it's just a strong song. I, you know, I hadn't listened to the record in a while, and then I kind of picked it up and started listening to it, and I was like, wow. These were some great songwriters back mm-hmm. then. These guys, I mean, just the core arrangements with the melodies were just off the chain. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you, you did uh, rock with with you, and it just, I mean, it's just really great. I mean, I love the record. It, I've been having it on. Uh, it's funny, you know. Ever ever since I we we we've been talking about doing this interview now for a couple of weeks now, uh, actually more than that, and. Um, you know, as soon as the record came out, I've been like playing it on repeat, and it's just such an enjoyable listen. Um, you you worked with uh, uh, Worley Morris on this record. Um, yes, Wirely. Wirely, sorry, sorry. It, uh, don't get me wrong. No, 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 nothing to be. It took me forever to get the man's pronunciation well, right. Well, <laughs> I was it, calling it, Wire. It's, I was it, calling Worley. <laughs> I, I just had to ask the man, "How do you pronounce it?" Well, it's an he interesting. <laughs> it's an interesting spelling. 
Um, exactly. Because when I when I look at it, I go, it looks like Whirly to me. But um, but yeah, he's he's worked with I mean Keith Sweat and and Boys to Men and I mean you name it, so many folks. Um, uh, this was sort of a departure from what you were doing, like with smooth vibes and stuff like that. As far as from a production standpoint, it sounds very open, very free. This this particular production. If you notice, the sounds are pretty much the same sounds. Yeah, that were used on the record. We just tried to duplicate it all the way through, from guitar player to guitar player. When I first started uh, recording, I was doodling around with the uh, melodies or, the, or the, from the verses. And I just and I listened back. I said, you know what? Seem like I'm trying to reinvent. Well, let me back this up and just play what's on the record. Mm-hmm. I think that would be more enjoyable. It leaves the spaces and the spacing, and it keeps it open, and it'd be more enjoyable. People can sing along with it, just like the record. So. I had to go back and redo that first song because I just wasn't comfortable with it. And we just kind of settled in on keep it simple. Right. So how was it working with him? Was it was it different? Was this a different experience for you working with him? Um, He did a song on my Into the Blue record called All I Need Is Love. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, he has wrote some some of the biggest hits in R&B. Mm-hmm. Just a phenomenal musician and songwriter. Um, it was a little different in terms of we're using a lot of R&B type sounds that I usually don't normally use in my songs. You know what I'm saying? Right. And other than that, uh, it was pretty good because he's easy to work with. He's he's very easy to work with. So that worked out very good. And um, it was a, it was a smooth project. I'll say I put it like this: very smooth to work on. That's cool. That's good. Um, I mean, it's so it's so important in in that setting, you know, when you're creating, to 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 have a really, you know, like you said, a smooth and stress free type of a situation when you're when you're trying to create. Um, yes, it is. So, I was wondering. I just wanted to kind of go back with you here. So you you grew up in Detroit. Yes. And uh, are you Detroit, still, are you still in Detroit now? I live in Michigan. I live in a city called Novi, just northwest of Detroit. Now. Okay, so Detroit is, I mean, has been, I mean, so such a hotbed of so many styles of music throughout the years. I mean, honestly, I, I mean, there have been genres of music that have been created in Detroit. Um, what were some of your first influences? Gospel music. Yeah. I was born and raised in the church. Matter mm-hmm. of fact, I still play in the church when I'm when I'm home. I play on Sundays. Um, I come from a big family, eight girls and four boys. And our parents took us to church every Sunday. And my sisters, are out of the 12, all of my siblings had musical talent, but two. So my sister was the organ player at the church, and all of my other sisters sang in the choir and one was the choir director and uh, I remember at the age of 11 we had a guitar player we don't live too far from Toledo, Ohio it was at the time about 45 minutes this guy would come down and uh, play at the church and I saw him play one day and I was just blown away I was an 11 year old kid and the funny part was he was trying to talk to one of my sisters so he would come down to meet her you know, during the week trying to date her Mm-hmm. And I was always asking him questions about the guitar. And he was like, yeah, he was trying to talk to my sister, and I'm asking questions, so I was in the way, really. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> so I said, i tell you what. You show me how to play the guitar, I'll leave you alone and let you talk to my sister. And that's how I got my first guitar lessons. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. <laughs> that's great. So you were a negotiator from the get-go. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> And it worked out for me. He showed me how to play the guitar, yes. Because I left him alone and let him talk to my sister. <laughs> and was he was he primarily a uh, worship player or was he a was he a jazz player? Oh, he was a worship. Now let's go back to the church back then in the black church. It wasn't worship, it was just hardcore gospel. Oh, okay. Back then, you know, and he could play. 
I mean, could play. And he had a funny tuning in his guitar. He didn't tune in standard. He tuned in Vastview. What was Vastview? I can't remember how to pronounce it. It was so long ago. Uh, it was, um, let's see, a straight bar chord was a major chord. That's how he tuned. Oh, okay, so like an open tuning. Yeah, I guess you can call it that. But it was it was some, I think it was, was it Vastview he called it? But the straight bar chord was a straight, the first, you know, the high E, B, G, and D bar was a major chord. Okay, okay. That's how he tuned. Yeah, well, that's interesting. That's interesting. Yeah, I had never seen that and haven't seen it since. Huh. And so, but you you figured out in short order that well, I'm going to be tuning in standard tuning. Yeah. What happened was it was a guitar shop around the corner from our house called Grinnell's, and my father took me over to him after the guy got me going, and I was tuning like that. Can I when I kind of had just a little bit of control of my fingers? The guy said, "What what kind of tuning is that?" <laughs> <laughs> Little boy, I said, "Well, this is how the guy told me how to tune." He said, "No, don't tune like that." Then that's how I found out. <laughs> <laughs> hey, he was right because I have never seen anybody else anywhere in the world tune like that. Well, it's a good thing you didn't get too far up the road then with that. Yeah, right. Man. Ooh, that'd have been bad, wouldn't it? <laughs> um. So, how did you? What was the impetus? What to get you into jazz? I remember I started playing guitar, and by the time I was 14, I started traveling. I wasn't making any money, but I was traveling around, you know, with the church and just, you know, some local quartet groups, you know. And by the time I was 16, I was going through Fair Lane Mall in Dearborn, Michigan, which was right next to Southwest Detroit, and I heard George Benson over the uh, the, um, system in the mall. Mm-hmm. And I was just like, who in the world is that? Mm-hmm. I'd never heard of him. Mm-hmm. I played in church all that time. I was like, who is that? And I'm just asking everybody, any stranger, who is that playing? Who is that playing? And I found out it was George Benson. I said, that's what I want to do right there. Now, all this time, I'm playing by ear. I'm just playing by ear. And I didn't have any formal training. But when I started trying to transition from just playing gospel into jazz, I was finding it was like a barrier. I didn't have any theory background. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. I didn't know the scales. I knew the chords. I didn't know why they call them what they called them at the time. So by the time I was 18, you know, it was just like a it was frustration was building because you can sit here and learn a lick, but how do you use the lick? Mm-hmm. You know, you only can use it when you're playing that song as far as I knew because I didn't have any kind of theoretical background. Then I won a scholarship to the um, uh, Conservatory of Detroit, Creative Studies, Music and Dance in Detroit. And that's how I learned core theory, jazz theory, classical theory, and I learned how to read. And then it seemed like once I understood that, it seemed like I just got up on a chair and looked over a wall and said, oh, now I see. Uh, you can do whatever you want to do once you understand what you're doing. It's right. just a matter of where you choose to go at that point. Right. Right, it's like it's like vocabulary. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So finding finding the right words to say, and then you can say it emotionally, and 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 deliver it in a way that's gonna that's going to reach somebody. Exactly, and that's I couldn't have said that better. It's going to move somebody and reach somebody because you know what's always fascinated me as a musician is, you know, you got the major scale, and the major scale is the major scale, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. But everything comes from that. And it's just so many great pieces of music and great solos have come from those, you can say seven notes, some people say eight. Uh, because I, in my view, everybody is different. Mm-hmm. I can play a major scale and solo over it, and you can take that same major scale and solo over it, and it'll sound entirely different. Because mm-hmm. where you land, your personality, your DNA, right. you land on this note, right. I'll land on another note, right. and it all works. That has always been amazing to me. Yeah, yeah, no, I totally agree with you. It's 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 all about the uniqueness of that individual and how they how they're able to speak. You know, that's I mean, it's the same thing when you hear somebody talk. You know, you hear you hear somebody make a speech. 
not everybody's going to make yeah. a speech the same way. Absolutely. Yeah, I couldn't yeah. agree more. Yeah. Um, so from there, you got out of school, and then what happened? Uh, I started going to Wayne State University. Uh, and you, it's a group called The Winans. I don't know if you've ever heard of them before or not. It's a gospel group called The Winans. Uh-huh. We were all, I was 22 at the time. They were a gospel group, and they signed with this artist named Andrew Crouch, who was really big in Christian music at the time. And they had a hit song called The Question Is. The song just went to number one on in gospel and was very big and crossed over in R&B too. So now they're getting ready to start traveling the country. We had met, I think, when I was 19. So they called me and said, man, we need a band director. Now, here we are, all kids. I'm 22. They're 23. And here we go. I'm coming straight from church to travel in the world at age 22. <laughs> and that's how I got into professional music. <laughs> <laughs> so that must have been a real, like, splash of cold water in your face as far as what, you know, coming from one thing into something else. I mean, the road is, the road can be tricky. Well, let me put it like this. It was more like waterboarding. That's what it was. <laughs> I felt like I was being waterboarded. <laughs> That's what it felt like. Man, I'm just telling you, man, it was like coming at us a thousand miles an hour. And we're only 22. Right. All of us were coming out of the church. It wasn't like, you know, I started playing. I was playing in clubs and I was learning, you know, planning, you know, playing. I'm learning about the music, but no. We came straight out of church and started traveling the world. Wow. And it was coming fast, 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 fast. Yeah. And like you said, it's more than tricky. Yeah. You know, so I'm thankful, you know, we made it through. But I tell you one thing that did help me that I learned the music business. I learned the music business very quickly because by them being so big at that time, we were always around music executives. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it was, it, I learned, because most people think it's the music and the business. No, it's the business and the music, really. Mm, yeah. That's if you case. understand the business, you can make it as a musician. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And now that's what, that's one of the things I was fortunate to learn early on, the music business. And what do you think that is? Do you think that's just being a good listener and soaking it up? Well, that too. And because the, in all honesty, when you think as a musician young like that, you're thinking, okay, we're traveling all around the world. We're getting ready to be rich. Mm -hmm. It doesn't work quite like that. Mm -hmm. At the time, I was just a side musician. So, okay, now I'm trying to put two and two together after maybe a, two, maybe a year, year and a half. Okay, I'm making good money, and I'm in the airports traveling every four nights a week. Four days a week, we're in the airport. It should be more money. So what is the deal? Then you begin to start listening and just soaking up what this is all about. Mm -hmm. Then you're seeing these guys that's, you know, coming to the shows or the, you go into the executives' houses and they're living in these big houses in L.A. And when they come to the show, they're sitting on the front row doing nothing. We're up there on stage in the light sweating like dogs. Mm -hmm. And they're rich. And I'm poor. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just being honest with you. You know what I'm no, saying? No, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and then if you observe it, you begin, okay, what is this? Yeah. And then you begin to learn the business. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I, I totally hear you. I mean, it's funny because I'm, I'm reading a book right now uh, on, obviously, you know who Van Halen is. And um, on their early days, and their first record came out. Their first record went gold. It went platinum. And they're on their first tour as an opening act. And it, here they are. They've got a platinum record. It's doing really, really well. And they're only getting paid $750 a gig to, spe wow. to, to split up with the four guys. And when the tour... It's a platinum record. And a platinum record. And when the, and when the, the, when the tour was over, they owed... Warner Brothers Records, $1.2 million for expenses for that tour. 
So as soon as that tour was over, it was like, okay, fellas, get back in the studio, record another record so we can recoup, so you can recoup your losses. It was the deal that they signed. Yeah. And, you know, and regretfully, so many people signed those deals and so many people to this day still don't understand the music business. And you know what, though? It's not that they don't want to or they don't think they should, but to be an elite musician, you know this, I know this, they know this, it takes a lot of work. Mm -hmm. It takes a lot of practice. And then you need to know the music business at least halfway as good as you can play. Right. There's more time. I'm not saying you need to know everything because I've been in the business now for over 40 years and I don't know everything about the music business. Mm -hmm. Nobody does. Mm -hmm. But you need to know the basics. Mm -hmm. And But, you know, we musicians, we have a tendency to hone that craft, hone that craft, and we neglect the music business. Mm -hmm. Now, with today's environment and music you can make money in the music business if you know what you're doing mm -hmm. much easier now I wouldn't say much easier it's a little more difficult I should say mm -hmm. but you can be in the music business one of the reasons it's hard to make a little bit more money because you don't have CD sales mm -hmm. you know what I'm saying you go out and do a show sell four or five thousand dollars I mean four or five thousand I'm sorry four or five hundred records mm -hmm. at a show Mm -hmm. Those CDs are gone now. They yeah. want a song. All they're gonna want to buy now is that song that they hear on the radio, right? And download that to the phone. So that eighteen dollars that you were getting at three or four hundred sales a night is gone. Yeah. So that makes it a little more difficult. But you can be in the music business through digital, and it doesn't cost as much to make a record if you know what you're doing, and you can have your record sound just as good as anything on the radio mm -hmm. if you know what you're doing or have the people around you that know what they're doing yeah I mean that's the thing too is like it's it. I'm waiting to see when everybody's gonna wake up and be like hey hang on a second it costs us less to produce a record than it did 20 years ago 30 years ago yes it does yeah it, and it costs us less to, to, to produce that record in the sense of creating the actual pack you don't have to create an actual package anymore that has to be you know printed and packed and shipped and then go stocked at a, at a record store so there isn't that expense anymore but right. yet the artist is is getting less per stream than they would get if there was an actual hard piece of plastic attached to this thing that's where i'm waiting to see when these scales are going to get rebalanced here for the artist um, you know I, I've got plenty of, plenty of friends who have records out right now and they say you know yeah if I get you know if I get 10,000 streams I'll see this amount they'll see this much or if I get you know 4,000 streams I'll see this much and it's it's right. it's it's the the scales are definitely out of whack in my opinion it's anyway. pennies almost for that kind of stream oh absolutely it's pennies it's pennies on it's the it's pennies but now, to your point, at some point, it's going to have to be rebalanced. Yeah. I don't know if you remember a few years ago, Taylor Swift had a dusting up. I think it was a Spotify or one of those groups. Yeah. Yeah. You know, there was over that issue right there. Yep. It was, that was the issue. And, and I think they tried to rebalance it a few years ago, but it's still not in line where it should be. No, absolutely not. I mean, especially... It's, it's not if, in line. Especially if, if, if the... You know, if if there's got to be a, some sort of return on investment, especially if the investment isn't that large anymore, you know. Exactly. I, I mean, I remember seeing the changes uh, happening in the late '80s when hip hop came in and, and R and B was 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 using a lot more digital recording to as, as more digital recording was coming into the fray. That you know, you'd have a Bon Jovi record, which would cost five hundred thousand dollars to make, and then you'd have a De La Soul record that would come out, and then only cost them eight thousand dollars to make, and they both sold the same amount of units. So right. you know, that's when you start to say, okay, well, that's when the record companies started saying, well, hang on a second, you know. 
if why are we spending this much money on this type of music? We can make this type of music a lot more accessible and and a lot more and and you know it's just like I said once again the, the scales are out of balance. If if you can if you can cre- create music and you can create it inexpensively then the artist should get paid more in my opinion. Yes. Now, one thing one thing I did learn in the music business early, I should say in my early years on the road about the music business was you need to own the masters. Mm-hmm. At the time, I wasn't sure as to why, but I knew that was always a discussion, who's going to own the masters. Mm-hmm. So my first record came out, I knew that in 96, because I did eight years with the Winans, and I was just burned out after that. We were gone. I mean, when I say a, tra- a touring schedule, we had a monstrous touring schedule and after eight years I was burnt out and in 96 you know, and when I kind of had a chance to unwind and decompress I remember my wife telling me you know you ought to make your own solo record mm-hmm. I said you know I'm going to put two or three songs together put some equipment in the house and that's what we did and the record took off but from my early days with the wine as I understood we needed to own the masters so I paid for everything and I would just license my records to record companies mm. and they would have like two years and everything reverts back to me mm-hmm. right so I always owned the masters I've always owned my publishing company mm. and I always had a music production company that made the records that licensed them to the record company right now I did not know at the time what would happen now with streaming like with sound exchange right sound exchange pays the rights owner they have nothing to do with the publishing or the writer they deal with streaming to the artists and the rights owner. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. So I'm the rights owner to all eight of my records. So that makes a difference. Right. Now, somebody just getting in the business, what I would tell them, EPs, four songs or less, until you can start building up your catalog. Yeah. Because if you start spending a lot of money, and one more thing I try to tell people, if you don't mind me saying. No, please. You may have Pro Tools, you may have Logic, or whatever DAW you're using. And it's a rarity to be able to play, write, and produce, mix, and master your own records at the level they need to be at. It's going to cost you a little bit of money. If it's even just getting the best mix engineer, then getting the best mastering engineer. And to be honest with yourself about this song that I wrote that I'm going to record, is it just is it good because I wrote it, mm-hmm. or is it actually going to move people? Because it can sound good, well performed, it's just not a good song. Mm-hmm. And it's just no level of market is going to do anything about that. Mm-hmm. Or vice versa, it could be a good song and just recorded earlier, just terribly. You know what I'm saying? So when I say be honest with yourself, is my song as good as what's on the radio? If mm-hmm. these songs that I'm hearing in the genre I like, if they're at 10, am I at least at an 8.5 or 9? Right. As far as quality, and put around you a few uh, a group of people that will tell you the truth. I don't like that song. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Get you I mean, a group of people and then get a consensus about the material you're doing because, you know, you got your money before you start mixing and mastering these songs, have a consensus of whether they're good songs. And the music business will make you be honest with yourself about that because, okay, song album one didn't do nothing. Album two didn't do anything. Right. Why? Right. And there's one other reason where people make good songs and good records and good son- sonically good records. It's going to take some marketing. And I don't mean my cousin or my little brother or my sister <laughs> know how, knows how to work Facebook. No. Right. No, you need to hire a marketing firm. Right. To get you because you and ten million other people try and do the same thing. Oh yeah. Especially now. You need to get especially now. Yeah. And when you hear you may hear, well, this artist did that and everybody said, Wow, he did that, guess what? It's not gonna work for you because ten other million people try to do the same thing he did. Right. You see what I'm saying? I'm not saying it can't be done, but it's so rare. But what is tried and true if you put a good record together sonically and material wise the song's moving people then you go and you hire a marketing firm get the money ready get it prepared 
and you let them get you out of that bucket with the other 10 million people mm -hmm. because there are places for them to market your songs uh, magazines websites internet radio stations that you've never heard of that may have 100 200 300,000 subscribers right and I'm, the reason I'm saying this because I learned this for myself because I've always been with a label but Into the Blue was my biggest selling record by far and I've had some good records but Into the Blue was the biggest one and that was on my label mm -hmm. so I was responsible for everything and I remember having a conversation with my manager you know when we put everybody on the record the record was done we felt good about it he said we need to spend almost as much money on marketing as we did putting this record together now mind you I'm paying for this so you know what I'm thinking I'm like what <laughs> what we gotta do what now so excuse me <laughs> That's right. You just you just keep hearing cha ching, cha ching. Yeah, right, man. I'm leaking oil, man. I'm leaking oil. That's right. Absolutely. I'm Absolutely. leaking oil, but that was the smartest thing. You know, he, the people that manage is Charlie Wilson managed me, so he knew exactly what he was talking about, right. whether I wanted to hear it or not. Right. Yeah. And that was the smartest thing I ever did. So I'm telling you from I'm telling people from experience. Don't just make a good record and throw it against the wall and hope something sticks. Right. Because ninety nine percent of the time, ninety nine point nine nine percent of the time, that's just not going to happen. Right. It's not going to happen. Right. Because you and ten million other people doing the same thing, and it's that's not domestically now; it's internationally. That's who you're competing with. Right. Yeah. Yeah. The world has got a whole lot smaller. A whole lot smaller. Yeah. Yeah. But it can be done. You just got to be honest with yourself and just make sure you do everything, you know, that needs to be done. Because you never want to put a record together and then come back and say, "I should have, could have, would have." Yeah, for sure. And do your best. To, and do your best to hold on to the publishing or most of it. You, you, well, I'm gonna tell you what I what I am saying, and I've been saying, especially in our genre, is most people are putting these records out on their own now. Because if you have to, if you step back and look, back in the day, like you were saying, it should be very expensive to make a record. Yeah. $150 an hour studio time. Yeah, it's crazy. $200. That was crazy. Yeah. You know, smooth jazz records costing $150,000 and that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. Okay. ADAT ended all of that. You remember the ADAT recorder? Oh, yeah. Yeah, that just broke the foundation. Mm -hmm. Of all that, then the computer, the DAWs came in and they just knocked all the walls down. Yeah. So it doesn't cost that much, but you needed a record company back then because we're musicians. Who had one hundred fifty thousand hours? Who had eighty, ninety thousand, one hundred thousand dollars to make a record? We oh, didn't, yeah. so we needed a record company. Oh yeah. And the record wanted the record company wanted that publishing. You can stop me anytime if you think I'm talking too. No, much. rock on. <laughs> this is great. The record company wanted some of that publishing to help recoup. Sure. You know, they're going to get the sale and they wanted to recoup. Okay. And it was pretty much a deal. You know, either, if you knew something, you can walk out with half of it. If you didn't know anything, you walked out with nothing. Mm -hmm. Okay. But you needed the record company to make the record and you needed the distribution machine. Yeah. To get your, your records on the shelves in the stores. If you didn't have that, you were dead in the water. Yep. Okay, so fast forward to now, you don't need all that money to make a great record. You just got to be smart about it. You can cut all you want. But if you don't know how to master it, just as good as you're a musician, you need to be that good as a mix engineer. Mm -hmm. And like I said earlier, that's a rarity. So get somebody else to do it and do it right. So you can make a record inexpensively because you don't, and, and you don't need the distribution machine. I said all that to say this. That's why you see so many artists do it themselves now. Yeah, yeah. Well, like you said, and they like, keep all the publishing. Yeah, like you said, with Taylor Swift is a perfect example of that. You yes, know, she's become she's yeah. become her own she's become her own record mogul. You know, mogul. Yeah, without a doubt. Yeah, absolutely. And you and know, then whatever genre. I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, I was going to say, and whatever genre it is, you know. There are people who will listen, who loves what you do, but we got to go back to, I don't care what your genre is, it needs to be good material to move people. Yes. 
And that is the key. It's like real estate is location, location, location. Mm -hmm. Music is song, 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 then marketing, marketing, marketing. Right. And that's the formula. Right. Yep, absolutely. Absolutely. Yep. I used to hear somebody say back in the day, uh, back in the, uh, like in the Brill building days, uh, they used to say, don't, uh, don't bore us, get to the chorus. <laughs> I have never heard that, but I think that could be a more true statement. <laughs> don't bore us, get us to this chorus. Oh, I like that. I'm going to use that. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> get to the chorus. Yeah. That's where it's hanging. It's all about the hook. It's all about what you know, right moving somebody. Right. Got to move somebody. You know what? I'm gonna tell you something, man. I'm glad you said that. I write. I've just been blessed to be able to write my own material, mm-hmm. and people like it. So okay, and I, I'm thankful for that. All my songs, the chorus is the first thing I write. The hook, right? And then we write around that. If the hook is good and I like it and it feels good, right? We're going from there. Yep. But get to the course get to the course and I mean I could tell you a ton of stories about you know radio promoters calling artists back and saying we like this hook but you're taking all day to get to it (laughs) (laughs) it's so true it's so true like you said don't bore us get to the course yeah absolutely Absolutely. So, but you know, you can spend, people can make it in the business. You just got to be smart and know how to do it in this day. You know. Mm-hmm. So. Absolutely. Well, you know, speaking of singles, you've got a single right now that's making noise on the Billboard. Yes. And it's doing well streaming. Yes. Uh, it's a track called "Moving and Grooving." Yes. Um, and how did this collaboration come about? Well, I'm thankful. This is my. <laughs> 18th, 19th, 20th, top 10. Wow. And if it gets to number one, I think it'd be my 11th number one. Wow. Billboard. But I'm going to tell you something, man. Most of this, this may sound funny. I love football. Mm-hmm. I love watching tennis. I love to watch golf. I love to watch the NFL. I mean, the NBA finals. And most of the time, and a good movie, but most of the time I'm watching TV, I have my guitar in my hand, just, you know, keeping my the right hand left hand coordination going yep. and I hear melodies and most of the songs that I write is when I'm watching television because yep. I, I always got the guitar in my hand I'm always doodling yep. and I'll come up with a nice hook and then I'll start putting it together and then I'll put it in my phone and I'll come back the next day and listen to it if it still moves me I'll you know, pursue it because there's no question I wrote if you look at my phone right now it's about 50 60 ideas on there probably 90% of them are nothing <laughs> you know what I'm saying? That's what I, <laughs> but I'm honest with myself. Not because I wrote it, that don't mean it's a hit. Right. You know? I'll come back and say, oh, man, that's nothing. I just move on. But uh, I remember writing that. I just started, I had a little uh, chord progression I was working on. Just, ooh, I like that. And I put it in the phone. And then I played it back and started putting that melody together. Mm-hmm. And uh, I called a buddy of mine out in Arizona. I said, man, you ought to collaborate with me on this song. Because I can hear a piano doubling this, and he put the track together. And uh, the drums were—I forgot where the drums were cut. The bass were cut, was cut in Scottsdale. It was mixed in Scottsdale, mastered in Greenwich, New York. But I cut all my guitars here in Michigan. It's a great track. It's so—it's so—you know—it's funny what's happening with, with with the music that you play right now. It's. To me, right now, that's it's the happiest music on planet right now. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Do you know what I mean? Because right now, there's not a lot of you know, there's a lot of folks that are struggling and 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 hurting and feeling you know what, you know just the way the world is right now. It's honestly the and that's one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you was because your music is it makes me happy. Oh, thank you, man. That, that's good to hear. Um, and Thank th- you. this track is that you know it is definitely one of those you know it just makes you really happy and it it's feel good music and that's so important it really is thank you thank you um so where is it sitting you know we're looking at where are, it's it's memorial day today and yeah. so wh- wh- where is it sitting on the charts right now 
I don't know where it's going to be at this week. Last week it was number five. You know, I would know by now, but it's Memorial Day. But um, I'll find out tomorrow, I believe. Yeah. But it was number five last week. That's amazing. I love it. Yeah. I've um, been blessed. I am thankful. Well, I'm going to say prayers and that you get a number one out of this. Thank you. Absolutely. Thank you. Um, so let's talk a little gear here because okay. uh, that's important stuff to us over here. Um, so you you're, you balance your repertoire with uh, with fair shares of electric and acoustic instruments. Um, can you walk us through your favorites? Guitars? Yeah. Okay. The acoustic guitar that I use is the Takamini. Uh-huh. That's about ooh, 37 years old. If you look at it, it looks like I found it in the garbage bin somewhere. <laughs> but when I when I when I bought it, it was brand new. Oh, <laughs> uh, you just put mo- you just put you just put mojo in it. That's what you did. Man, I'm just I looked at it the other day, man. It had a hole in it. I was like, well, how did this get? <laughs> how did this hole get in this guitar? <laughs> I'm like, what? <laughs> but I've always used that that Tacomini on all of my nylon string guitars because I just like the warmth of it, you yeah, know? Yeah. Um, my first record, Love, Joy, and Peace, in 96, I was playing... Okay, when I first started recording, I had a 37... No, 335. Mm-hmm. And I remember taking it to the guitar tech, and he said, you know what, man? If you're going to do this, you might want to try something a little thicker. So I want to try it a, uh, a 175. I sold a 335 and bought a 175. Mm-hmm. And I had 10-gauge strings on it. And no, he didn't tell me to get a thick guitar. He told me to get a thicker string. So I put some 13s on it, and I've always played 10-gauge. I've always played 10-gauge. Right. And he was saying, you know, if you put these 13s on there, it'll bring that wood tone up, which it does. And I did that record with 13s. And I use a Deodario Chrome. To me, that's the, you know, I love that string. Mm-hmm. The Deodario Chromes, 13s. And I did the record, and I loved the way it sounded. So I said, you know, I'm going to keep them on here and start trying to play, you know, and do some live gigs with them. Man. That was the hardest thing for me. My, my, my knuckles were hurting. My arms were hurting. I'm like, oh, no, 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 no. And just, I, I remember I was in a hotel room after a gig. And I was sitting there, man, my fingers were sore trying to do the things I do at 10 gauge on these 13s. And I was just kind of fooling around on the internet and had this, this interview on this guy. And he was saying, you know, it doesn't matter, you know, you're trying to be one of the guys who's a jazz guy, you know, being one of the guys who's playing 13s and 14s just because that's what jazz guys do. He said, no, it's about the tone. Man, I was so happy to hear that man say that. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I I took those 13s off and put some uh, Dear Dario Chrome 10 gauge. And I loved it. I loved it. So what happened was now I'm only like five ten, five eleven, mm-hmm. right? I'm not a big person, and the the one seventy five Gibson one seventy five is a big fat body. Yep. The jazz so I saw box. a picture of me on stage one time. I was like, man, that thing is swallowing you up. <laughs> <laughs> and then I saw a picture of George Benson playing a uh, the GB ten by Ibanez. Mm-hmm. And I'm saying, how is he getting that fat arch top tone out of that guitar? And I want to try one out. And when I before he even put the guy even plugged it up and let me play it, I was like, wow, it sounds like an arch top, but it was much smaller. And that's what I've been playing ever since uh-huh. with uh, Dear Dario Chrome's 10 gauge. Yeah, so Ivan has really figured out how to. I mean, working with with Benson like that, they really figured out how to do a jazz guitar, and and yes, and same with Pat Metheny too. They've been working with him as well. They really, really got it together. They're, you know, it's so it's so interesting how they they they're such a smart company in the sense that you know they they can make guitars for the shredders, you know, those rock guys, and they can yep. make these mm-hmm. great jazz boxes that are just just phenomenal, and they're really sought after really good stuff 
I mean, I'm gonna tell you, uh, that guitar, I just love the tone of that guitar. Now, when I'm recording, I go through a uh, requisite two preamp. Mm -hmm. It's about, ooh, when I, the record company bought it for me back in 97. And I go from, I go directly into that two preamp. It's a two space rack. Out of that, I go into, at the time I was going through, in, until this last record, I was going through an Apogee mm -hmm. duet. Mm -hmm. And then on into the computer. Now I'm, my, well, I had to get another computer here about six months ago, and Apogee would fit because of, you know, they got the USB C's now. Right. So I had to, now I'm using a uh, universal audio interface, and it sounds, they're pretty similar. But those, that combination is how I get my songs my sound on my records live i go into a 11 rack i went to a studio and we just sit up and design the sound for the 11 rack i go from the 11 rack right into the left side of a fender twin with three dials all these are three knobs uh volume i'm four knobs volume bass middle and treble and I run all of those on six and i go through that 11 rack and that gives me my sound and we mic the amplifier Wow, that's really, it's pretty simple. Yeah, it took me a long time to, to get down to, to being simple and more effective. Because I was trying to go direct out of the Levin rack, mm -hmm. using amp emulators and all that. And, you know, you can have them manipulated on the stage to sound good. But then when I would go out and play in the audience, it would just be thin. Mm. So I just, I was in Spain. There was it Spain? No, I was in Dubai. And uh, a buddy of mine said, why don't you just mic that? Let's try micing it. Because I wasn't pleased. Man, that was the warmest sound. And I've never stopped since. That's what I've always done since then. Oh, that's interesting. And what, what do you like as far as a mic on there? Now, that I've not, you know, I've never really honed in on a particular mic. Yeah. The guy that, that travels, he always takes care of that. So I don't know what he's using, okay. really. Okay. I know it looks the same. I just never asked him. <laughs> Um, so you, you're, you're not using any pedals or anything like that, right, on the floor? Not on stage, no. If, no, I'm just going straight in, straight guitar. Yeah. Now, I do have a pedal rack when I was playing with the wine. It's a very extensive one. Uh -huh. When I'm doing, uh, what I, you know, when I'm, um, when I'm recording, I like to have another guitar player play the rhythm. Mm -hmm. Something that's a little different from what I'm doing, a di different perspective. You see what I'm saying? Sure. So when I come on with top of with the lead, it's you know it's not you know it's something different. But when I do do the lead, I use a uh, I have a Boss Chorus from 1982, mm -hmm. a Boss EQ from '82. What else do I have in there? A Boss Distortion from '82. <laughs> <laughs> uh, a Digital Delay by Boss. I mean, I, this is stuff I was traveling back in the in the 80s with and right. it still works oh just yeah like you, brand you can't kill them you can't kill those you can't, you, I, man this thing the, the, this pedal box has been thrown in planes dropped out of planes and everything else and still works <laughs> that's great <laughs> and it still works so you know I, that's what I use when I play at church but um, on stage I go straight into the 11 rack mm -hmm. right into the Fender Twin mm-hmm that's great, and it's interesting that you're using a Fender Twin. I, I, that's that's I, not what I expected. I'm not sure what yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm, now, not, I'm not sure sorry. what I expected, but it's not what I expected. The Fender Twin to me is a workhorse, but now my favorite amp of all all times, my first brand new amplifier I ever had. Now I love more than anything is a Fender Super Reverb. Mm -hmm. I bought my father bought that for me when I was 15. I still have it. Heavy as hell. Yeah. But you know what? The Fender Twin is heavier. Yeah? Then the suit, yes. That thing, that little thing <laughs> is ridiculously <laughs> heavy. But you know what? The thing that's about it, though, though, it can take whatever you run through there. I don't care if you're playing the loudest rock and roll you want to. It's going to take it. Mm -hmm. That's why I like it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's just, it is clean. Yeah. It doesn't shape the music or put any coloring on the tone. Yeah. It gives you what you put in it. Yeah, loud and clean. 
loud and clean. Yeah. You have to just be cranking it to yeah. get any distortion. Yeah. But I'd like to play that loud, so you know. Yeah, yeah. So are are you going to be uh, hitting the road in support of this record, or what's going to happen? Yes, um, I'll be in Maryland in June. I think about June eighteenth, nineteenth, and I'll be back in Detroit in August, and I have a few dates in between there. Okay. You know, promoting the record. Cool. Um, I don't travel as much as I used to, but I still love to play. You know, when you've been traveling as long as I have, all you know, you get tired of hotels and airplanes. <laughs> but I still, <laughs> but I do travel, and I and I love playing with the band. I love live, you know, play to play live. It's just the travel that uh, right. now that I'm 63 years old, the travel is taking a toll on me. Mm-hmm. You know. Well, but I still love to play with my band. I have some great musicians that travel with me. But yeah, we get ready to hit the road this summer. That's great. That's great. Man, I'd love to come up there and see you. That'd be great. Anytime you come this way and I'm playing, all you got to do is give me a call. You got my number. All right. Make sure you sit in the VIP section. All right. I like that a lot. <laughs> um, so how does it how does it feel to have your son follow you into the career? I'm going to tell you, man. I am so thankful for my two children. I am truly thankful. Uh, I have a daughter who's two years older than him. She has a very large PR firm that she owns in Michigan. And she does a lot of big national uh, contracts, so she's doing very well. And she used to always tell my son, and I, this is what you guys need to do. I need you to do this, 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 wear this, record this, this. She was running the thing. You know, I'm like, mm-hmm. what is this? She's telling us what to do. <laughs> but she knew what she was talking about. <laughs> now she's got an OPR firm. That's amazing. And Yeah, and they work hard. And I remember my son. It's a funny story. I remember when he was three. I, I think my wife and my daughter were out. And he was at home with me. And I remember looking in the closet. He was sitting in front of the television. And, you know, one of those commercials came on with a real catchy tune. When he was sitting on the bed. And this is the God's truth. They sung tune, the, the, the little hook line, at the beginning of the commercial. Then they came on and talked about whatever it was uh, they were talking about. Then they started singing at the end. And he started getting harmony. I looked around. And him. And he was singing harmony with the guy on television at three years old. Wow! Unbelievable! That I got—I just—I couldn't wait till my wife get home. I said, "You got to hear this." I—I I couldn't sing, so I didn't. He couldn't get harmony with me, but I just—it just blew me away. Shortly after that, you know, when he got a little older, like nine, ten, he would just be in his room just practicing. You know, a lot of gospel singers, you know, do a lot of vocal acrobats, runs and riffs. Mm-hmm. And he would just be in there all day, all night, practicing, practicing, practicing. And in the middle of the night, you'll hear me in the morning, the middle of the night, you call down the hall, shut up. I'm trying to sleep. Shut up. <laughs> and in the middle of the night, he got his, he, he would just be in there with the tape recorder right next to his ear, practicing, practicing. And another funny story. My first number one single was a song called Summer Groove. And I remember I was recording it in the house here. And I remember him coming down, I think it was 13, 14, maybe 14, 15, I can't remember. He came down to the studio and he said, Daddy, I'm hearing something on here. I'm hearing some backgrounds. So I said, okay, I got up. We set a mic up and I went on upstairs. He come back an hour later and said, come check this out, Daddy, come check this out. And those backgrounds you hear on Summer Groove, that's him. Wow. All the vocals you hear. And when it went to number one, you know what he said, right? What? If it wasn't for me, it wouldn't have went to number one. <laughs> I'm the, <laughs> boy, get out of here. <laughs> I got you a number one. Oh, sweet Jesus. I say, boy, get away from here. <laughs> oh, God. That's amazing. Uh, I love it. I love then, it. He used, to, he used to travel with me. I, the deal was if I was doing a show in the city he would sing with me I said I'm not paying you because you're staying at home for free <laughs> and so we laugh about that you know I said I would pay but he was he, you singing for free you stay at home for free I'm paying for the lights again you singing for free that's right you're eating my food <laughs> exactly you all in the refrigerator all day so 
<laughs> you sing it for free. Uh, that's great. So then when he blew up, I can't even afford the band now. <laughs> right? I can't afford it. <laughs> that's fantastic. I love it. He'll call me there. I need some guitar on this. Wait a minute now. Wait a minute. Wait. Let's let's come. Let's come together. Let us come together and reason here. <laughs> you know, you want to charge me, but you want me to play for free. So we always laugh about that. So. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's beautiful. I love it. That you you are blessed. Absolutely. I'm thankful. I am, I'm blessed. I'm thankful. Very thankful. Wow, that's fantastic. So you were saying earlier that this '80s 8.0 is just the first step in a in a line of other records coming up the road. Yes. Tell me a little it'll bit. It'll probably be a it'll probably be a '99.0 or something like that. Uh huh. But that is the plan, yeah. That's exciting. I love it. Now that that because that's got me thinking. Now, okay, let me think of the songs of the day in that time period, in that decade. What will it be? You know, that's really cool. I love that idea. Any submissions? We are open because there's so many hits out there. Yeah, great song. Yeah, great absolutely. song. But I think we'll be promoting this record for at least a year and a half because yeah. you know we're going to give each song. Yeah. We're going to make a video of each song and just keep, you know, putting them out and do you know, see what we can do and yeah. hopefully, you know, hopefully people like it. Yeah. Well, I, I think it's a great record and, uh, I wish you all the success with it. Man, I thank you for giving me the opportunity to come on, on your show and just have a good time. And I've had a good time. Oh, good. I'm so glad. And I appreciate you and what you do. I really do. Uh, folks, thank you. go to timbowman.com. Go anywhere you can stream, and you can you can also download this as well, folks. So go ahead and you know, like I always say, you know, it's totally fine for you to it's totally fine for you to 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 stream to your heart's content. But I'm a big fan of also buying that record. So this way, this way, this this artist can make more music. If you really like it, buy it. And that's that's how I say it. So, sir, thank you so thank much. You. You hold on one second, but we're gonna we're gonna sign off right here. You hold on one.
radio show on iTunes, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Stitcher Radio, GuitarRadioShow.com, and anywhere you get your podcasts. Find Guitar Radio Show on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And remember, if you like the artists you hear on Guitar Radio Show, don't just stream their music, buy it. Productions.